Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You can download Spacetime as a free twice-weekly podcast just about everywhere, including iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, Bytes.com, YouTube, SoundCloud, Audioboom, and from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com. The show is also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science 360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C. Coming up on Spacetime... The end of a mission as Rosetta's suicide death plunge about to begin. Pluto's heart shedding fresh light on a possible buried ocean. And the New Zealand space program leaving Australia for dead. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. After a mission lasting more than 12 and a half years, the European Space Agency's Rosetta probe is now on its final orbital trajectory. Its flight path will send it on a suicidal death plunge onto the surface of Comet 67P sheremov gerasimenko on September 30. Rosetta made history on August 6, 2014, when it became the first spacecraft to achieve orbit insertion around a comet. The historic accomplishment followed a mammoth 10-year journey to reach the 5-kilometre-wide multi-lobe mountain of rock and ice, known as Comet 67P, as it travelled on its eternal six-year orbit between Jupiter and the Sun. History was made again on November 11, 2014, when Rosetta deployed its fillet lander to touch down on the comet's surface. But things didn't go quite to plan, with the tiny lander's push engine and grappling hooks failing to anchor Philae onto the comet's frozen surface. Instead of a secure touchdown, Philae bounced across the comet's wild, tortured landscape for over two hours, before finally coming to rest on its side in a dark, shaded crevice with at least one of its legs in the air. Meanwhile, after orbiting the comet for some two years, and returning an unprecedented wealth of scientific information during 67P's closest approach to the Sun, Rosetta and the comet are now heading back out beyond the orbit of Jupiter. Travelling further from the Sun than ever before, and faced with what will be a significant reduction in solar power, Rosetta's destiny is to undergo a controlled descent onto the comet's surface. The final hours of this descent will enable Rosetta to make many once-in-a-lifetime measurements, including analysing gas and dust closer to the surface than ever previously possible, and taking very high-resolution images of the comet's nucleus, including the open pits of the Marat region, where the spacecraft's expected to make its controlled impact. Just a few days ago, on September 24th, Rosetta moved from its flyover orbit and transferred to a 16km by 23km orbit designed to prepare and line up the spacecraft for its final descent. Then, on the evening of September the 29th, at 2050 GMT, Rosetta will manoeuvre into its final collision course with a comet, beginning the descent from an altitude of 19 kilometres. The spacecraft will then freefall without further manoeuvres, collecting scientific data during its final descent. That descent will culminate with impact in a region of active pits on the comet's smaller lobe from which jets of cometary material spew into space, helping to form the comet's spectacular coma and tails. The Marat region is home to several active pits more than 100 metres in diameter and up to 60 metres deep. The walls of these pits have intrigued scientists for years. 
they contain metre-sized lumpy structures which have been nicknamed goosebumps and which scientists believe could well be the signatures of cometesimals, the early building blocks that assembled to create the comet in the early phases of the solar system's formation. Rosetta will get its closest look yet at these fascinating structures on September 30, its last day of life, as the spacecraft will target a potential impact point adjacent to a 130-metre-wide well-defined pit which mission managers have named Deir el-Medina, after a structure with a similar appearance in an ancient Egyptian town with the same name. Just like the archaeological artefacts found inside the Egyptian pit, which is telling historians about the life of the ancient pharaonic town, the comet's pit contains clues to the geological history of 67P Sheremov Sheresimenko. Rosetta will target a point very close to Deir el-Medina, within an ellipse of about 700 by 500 metres. Since August the 9th, Rosetta has been flying elliptical orbits that bring it progressively closer and closer to the comet. On its closest flyby, it may come to within one kilometre of the surface, far closer than ever before. Mission managers say the probe's already feeling the difference in the gravitational pull of the comet as it flies closer and closer. And that's increasing the spacecraft's orbital period, which now has to be corrected by almost constant small manoeuvres. The impact is expected to occur within 20 minutes of 10.40 Greenwich Mean Time on September 30th. With the only uncertainties linked to the exact trajectory of Rosetta on the day and the influence of gravity close to the comet. Now, taking into account the additional 40 minute signal travel time between Rosetta and the Earth, it means that confirmation of impact, consequently, the final death certificate, can be expected at ESA's mission control in Darmstadt, Germany, within 20 minutes of 11.20 Greenwich Mean Time. Mirroring Rosetta's wake-up from deep space hibernation in January 2014, where the rising peak at the right frequency confirmed the spacecraft was alive and transmitting its carrier signal, mission managers will see that peak disappear for a final time once Rosetta impacts. The sounding of its death knell, not with a scream, but with a whimper. It'll not be possible to retrieve any data after this time. A giant asteroid impact on the distant frozen water of Pluto deep in its past is offering new insights into the possibility of an ocean beneath the dwarf planet's icy surface. Ever since NASA's New Horizons spacecraft flew past Pluto in July last year, evidence has been mounting that the dwarf planet may have a liquid ocean beneath its surface. Now, a new study, reported in the journal Geophysical Research Letters, has modelled the impact dynamics which formed a massive crater on Pluto's surface providing scientists with estimates of exactly how deep that subsurface ocean might be. The study, led by Brown University geologist Professor Brandon Johnson, found that the ocean beneath the impact crater is likely to be at least 100 kilometres deep. The new research also offers a clue about the composition of the ocean, suggesting that it's likely to have a salt content somewhat similar to Israel's Dead Sea. Johnson says previous thermal models of Pluto's interior and tectonic evidence found on its surface have suggested that an ocean could exist, but little was known about its possible size or, for that matter, its composition. In order to try and resolve the issue, the authors focused on the Sputnik Planum, a massive 900-kilometre-wide basin which makes up the western lobe of Pluto's famous heart-shaped feature, first discovered by New Horizons during its historic flyby. The basin appears to have been created by the impact of an object at least 200 kilometres wide. 
The story of how the basin relates to Pluto's ocean starts with the basin's position on the planet relative to Pluto's binary partner and largest moon, Charon. Pluto and Charon are tidally locked with each other, meaning they always show each other the same face as they rotate around a common centre of gravity. Spartanic Planum sits directly on the tidal axis, linking the two worlds. The very fact that it's in that position suggests that the basin has what's known as a positive mass anomaly. In other words, it has more mass at this location than the average for Pluto's icy crust. So, as Charon's gravity pulls on Pluto, it would pull proportionally more on areas of higher mass. And that would eventually rotate or tilt the dwarf planet until Sputnik Planum became directly aligned with the tidal axis. The problem is, having a positive mass anomaly makes Sputnik Planum rather unusual as craters go. You see, to be an impact crater in the first place basically means you're a hole in the ground caused by a huge amount of material being ejected as a result of the impact. So you'd actually expect to have a negative mass anomaly caused by all the missing material. But that's not what Johnson and colleagues discovered at Sputnik Planum. And that got the team thinking about the possible sorts of events that could turn a negative into a positive mass anomaly. Now, part of the answer is that after it formed, the impact basin would have been partially at least filled by nitrogen ice. However, while that ice layer would add some mass to the basin, it simply wouldn't be thick enough on its own to make Sputnik Planum have positive mass. So, where did the additional mass come from? Well, the best solution is that the additional mass would have been generated by liquid seeping from the surrounding substrate. Johnson says it's a bit like a bowling ball being dropped onto a trampoline. The large impact creates a dent on the planet's surface, followed by a rebound. That rebound then pulls material upward from deep within the dwarf planet's interior. And if all that upworld material is denser than what was blasted away by the impact, the crater ends up with the same sort of mass as what it had before the impact happened. It's a phenomenon geologists refer to as isostatic compensation. Now, water is denser than ice. So if there was a layer of liquid water beneath Pluto's ice shell, it may have whirled up following the Sputnik Planum impact, evening out the crater's mass. So if the basin started out with neutral mass, then the nitrogen layer deposited later would be enough to create a positive mass anomaly. However, for this scenario to be correct, it requires a liquid ocean. Johnson and colleagues ran computer models of the impact to see if this is something that would actually occur, finding that the production of a positive mass anomaly would actually be quite sensitive to just how thick the ocean layer was. And it's also sensitive to how salty that ocean is, because the salt content affects the density of the water. The models simulated the impact of a large object big enough to create a basin of Sputnik Planum size, hitting Pluto with the sorts of speeds expected in that part of the solar system. The simulation assumed various thicknesses of the water layer beneath the crust from no water at all to a layer of water some 200 kilometres thick. And the scenario that best simulated Sputnik Planum's observed size depth, while also producing a crater with compensated mass, was one in which Pluto had an ocean layer over 100 kilometres thick and with a salinity of around 30%. What this tells us is that if Sputnik Planum is indeed a positive mass anomaly, and it certainly appears as though it is, a liquid ocean layer at least 100 kilometres deep has to be there. And of course that raises more questions about just how an object in such a dark, cold region of the outer solar system can even have a liquid ocean to begin with. Clearly the mystery continues.
A new study combining multiple telescopes at different wavelengths has successfully made the most precise measurements ever undertaken of the total amount of radiation hitting the Earth, finding that the planet's being bombarded by about 6 trillion photons per square metre every second. The findings reported in the Astrophysical Journal show that most photons originate as expected from the Sun. However, the study also found a significant percentage come from other stars, energy beams being blasted out by supermassive black holes as quasars and through light being reflected by cosmic dust. In fact, it turns out that about 10 trillionth of your suntan this summer probably comes from beyond our galaxy, having travelled across the universe for billions of years before finally ending their existence when they collide with your skin. The study's lead author, Professor Simon Driver from the University of Western Australia, says this is the most detailed and comprehensive study ever undertaken of light coming from beyond our galaxy. In fact, previous estimates of this radiation have varied by a factor of 10, and the new findings indicate cosmic dust could be causing a significant effect. The new research focused on photons ranging from ultraviolet through visible light and into the infrared, the range where most of the energy in the universe is produced, other than that coming from cosmic microwave background radiation, the leftover heat from the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago. Driver and colleagues found that the Earth's being constantly bombarded by about 10 billion photons per square metre per second from intergalactic space, known as extragalactic background light. The authors measured this ambient radiation from the universe over a wide range of wavelengths by combining deep images from a flotilla of space telescopes. These included NASA's Galaxy Evolution Explorer and the Wide Field Infrared Survey Explorer telescopes, as well as both the Spitzer and Hubble Space Telescopes, the European Space Agency's Herschel Space Observatory and Australia's Galaxy and Mass Assembly Survey, to make the most accurate measurements ever undertaken of extragalactic background light. The study's all part of an ongoing research program to better understand the evolution of energy, mass and the structure of the universe. Driver says the research program examines how the cosmos went from the smooth distribution of atoms in the early universe to the emergence of the periodic table and the multitude of stars, galaxies and galaxy clusters we see today. We've brought together data from a whole array of telescopes, in particular three or four NASA space telescopes and the ESA space telescope, all the very, very deep-filled data over quite a wide wavelength range. And we've used that to measure all the radiation that we're receiving from extragalactic space. So in a way, we're making a measurement of all the energy being produced in the universe over all time. And what did you find? Well, um, we found quite a lot of energy and I think the thing that, that is perhaps most humbling is we also have a model that seems to explain it as well and so we've made the measurement we found that there's three particular energy pathways there's the star formation pathway the same process by which the sun burns there's the quasar pathway which is the accretion of mass onto supermassive black holes and there's the reprocessing of this energy by dust grains and the models that we have basically give a very good prediction for the CBL so it, it's kind of nice that it all comes together we've managed to bring this data from a, a wide range of space telescopes and make this measurement at a much higher accuracy than ever before and then we seem to have models that uh, explain it um, as well there's two main ways in which energy is produced I mean there's a multitude but there's if you think of it in terms of the total amount of energy being produced it comes down to two ways one is star formation and that's just nuclear fusion taking place inside the cores of stars that's the the clean nuclear energy we would love to understand and love to be able to replicate here on the Earth to solve our, our energy crisis. So yeah, it's always 20 very, very, years away. That's right. We, we, we always seem to be 20 years away. We 
just don't seem to get ever get any closer it's on like that one. It's like quantum computers. It's the same thing. Yeah, no, I, uh, yeah, an, another one. Well, they said, they said that about gravitational waves, of course. And, uh, well, and, uh, yes, point taken. And so every so often you do get that surprise. But anyway, nuclear fusion uh, produces about half of the photons that are generated after the Big Bang. The other half is coming from material that's been squeezed and sucked into supermassive black holes. So we believe the center of every galaxy has a supermassive black hole. Stars, gas, whatever material is gradually being drawn into these, it gets crushed, forming an accretion disk. And in that process, it generates an awful lot of energy. And before the matter disappears into the black hole, you know, nothing can get out of a black hole. Um, you do have a lot of energy release. And so half the photons flying around in the universe are generated by star formation, and the other half are generated by this quasar activity. And then just to make things a little bit more confusing, galaxies also contain dust grains. So this is just the carbon and silica dust grains. And they tend to block some of that light. They then heat up. Up and then they glow at another wavelength. When you break all that down, you also looked at photons of different wavelengths. How do those figures break down? Yeah, that's right. So, well, we looked in, in this study, we looked from the ultraviolet um, okay. down to the far infrared. So, going from wavelengths of uh, 0.1 micron, which is, is much lower than the human eye can see, up to uh, about a millimeter wavelength. That's where we believe most of the energy, most of the photons produced in the universe, are being generated in that wavelength window, which is why we looked at that specific wavelength window and you find at the very short end you've got lots of the, the quasar energy coming out and then through the optical you've got the bulk of the stars producing photons and that gives you one big hump in the optical wave bands and then it sort of dips down a bit and then there's a second hump which is the dust that, that has a temperature of about 30 degrees Kelvin and just re-radiates and, and glows with a black body spectrum that comes out of the infrared wavelength. Are you missing much by not going to higher and lower wavelengths? Well um, th these are other active areas that we're not currently pursuing but there is the x-ray background and then there's the the radio background estimates of those have been made and they come in about a hundred times lower so at the moment we think that out of all the backgrounds the largest background by far is the cosmic microwave background but the leftover radiation from the big bang 2.7 degrees above absolute zero that's right exactly yes yeah. so 2.7 kelvin and that's still the largest photon bank of all. And then about 20 times lower is this extragalactic background light. And there's been a fair bit of controversy. Um, various people have made measurements before, a couple of filters here, a couple of filters there, using different methods. And um, when you put the data together, it's a real hodgepodge, maybe a factor of 10 uncertainty in some of the measurements at some wavelengths. And so we decided it would be a good idea to sit down with all the data and process it in a very standard way. And when we did that, we got a beautiful curve that just looked right and had very, very small error bars and we think some of the controversy as to why there might have been measurements, I don't want to say incorrect, but I guess I have before, uh, is possibly because we haven't understood how much dust there is in the solar system or the impact of maybe the Earth's atmosphere as well in our observations. What's the next phase? Yeah, well, the, the next phase for us is to try and break it up. So what we've done is we've, we've sort of integrated along the entire line of sight all the way from today back 13 billion years. We've added up all that energy. Now, what we want to do is to start breaking that up and say, well, how much energy came from 10 billion years ago? How much from nine? How much from eight? And so we can see how the balance between energy production between, say, quasars, star formation, and the impact of dust, how that's changed as a function of time. That's going to tell you an awful lot about things like the epoch of reionization and when we entered this deliferous age of the universe, things like that. Oh, yes. It, yes. I mean, I think um, having a complete model of the energy production in the universe, I mean, I, I, I guess we're fundamentally 
wonderfully interested in mass. Yeah, that's huge. Um, how did we get from the smooth distribution of atoms to things like stars and planets and black holes and so on? And every time there's a shuffling of matter, there's some energy produced. And so we want to follow the mass and measure the mass, and we also want to measure the energy and then build a model that explains the buildup of mass and all the different types of mass and see if we can explain all the photons that are flying around in the universe. And I'd say we, you know, we now have the capacity to do that with these wonderful telescopes. I mean, the NASA's various telescopes, which we've used, the, um, the GALAX, the WISE, the Hubble Space Telescope, of course, and then the European Southern Observatory's Herschel Telescope as well, which gave us the fire and red data. So, you know, it's, it's been absolutely godsend to have access to these fantastic facilities and to be able to put them together. And in a way, I think astronomy is changing a little bit, that we're no longer just working with one facility as an as individual astronomer, but we now have to look at the universe by put, tying together the data from all these different telescopes, e even eventually including the radio and the X-ray as well. Yeah, we're seeing astronomers who are you know, optical astronomers collaborating more and more with radio astronomers and so on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're here at, uh, at ICRA with, with a square kilometer array hopefully being built up the road in, in the not too distant future and uh, it just wouldn't make sense to just focus on the radio only you want to combine that radio data together with all the other wavelength data that's out there and I'm looking forward to find out about the LSST the large synoptic survey telescope which will be the, the next great thing in optical data and trying to tie that together with the, the SKA will be even more powerful. That's Professor Simon Driver from the University of Western Australia and the International Centre of Radio Astronomy Research. Search. Australian politicians on both sides of the political fence have a long and sad history of showing their lack of vision and foresight when it comes to the issue of space. From infamous claims that there's no future in space, which by the way is now a multi-billion dollar construction and launch industry, through to selling off Woomera's major lake heart launch pads for scrap and rejecting repeated offers to join the European Space Agency and the millions in technology spin-offs that spawned for agency members, Australian politicians seem far more interested in feathering their own nests and condemning future generations to what could be a third world economy. Meanwhile, across the Tasman, the situation couldn't be more different. Unlike Australia, New Zealand has a space agency not only that, but they're now developing a sophisticated satellite launch capability. Rocket Labs is now nearing completion of its new launch facility on the eastern Mahia Peninsula on New Zealand's North Island. The new spaceport's launch mount and strongback were finally installed in July, just seven months after construction began. The California-based company will use the Kiwi facility to launch satellite payloads of up to 150 kilograms aboard their 16-metre-high, 1.2-metre-diameter two-stage Electron rocket into orbital altitudes of up to 500 kilometres. Electron uses Rocket Lab's own Rutherford liquid-fueled engines. The first stage uses nine Rutherford engines, delivering a combined 34,500 pounds of thrust at launch, while a single Rutherford engine delivering 5,000 pounds of thrust will be used on the upper stage. The Rutherford engine, named after the famous Kiwi physicist, uses turbo pumps run by battery-powered electric motors rather than the usual gas generator, expander or pre-burner. Also, the engines are a bit unusual in that they're mostly fabricated primarily through 3D printing, using high-vacuum electron beams rather than lasers to melt layers of metal powder. Rocket Lab says it can take a payload to a 500-kilometre-high orbit for less than 5 million US dollars. The company's first launch vehicle was the Atea-1, 
Atiyah being Marty for space. It was a 6 metre tall, 60 kilogram suborbital sounding rocket capable of carrying a small 2 kilogram scientific payload on ballistic flights up to altitudes of 120 kilometres. Atiyah 1 flew successfully for the first time from the Great Mercury Island near Coromandel on November 30th, 2009. That's the show for now. You can subscribe and download Spacetime as a free twice-weekly podcast through iTunes, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, YouTube, Audioboom, and from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com. The show is also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C. This is Spacetime with Stuart Gary. For more, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Tumblr. Just search for Spacetime with Stuart Gary. Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine. This month, looking at whether the next generation of supercomputers will be able to handle the mega streams of data expected from the next generation of giant telescopes like the Square Kilometre Array. (laughs) 